Curtain going up. Curtain going up. Places, please. Overture, stand by. Ladies and gentlemen, she comes to you from the cornfields of Indiana. She loves the Constitution more than she likes most people. Allow me to introduce Shouse in the House. All right, everybody, welcome to this episode. I'm on here with Sam, and um, we're going to cover kind of a wide range of things, and we may, you know, divert attention away, but um, the main subject of our conversation this evening is an article that Sam wrote on ammo.com called Righteousness and Force in America, the Trap of Righteous Activism Coupled with State Power. Uh, You guys know that much of the things that I discuss, especially in like Friday night happy hours and in my writing and things like that, um, the state is always trying to take away from us as citizens. And this particular article, I'll be honest, Sam, it was I had to read it a couple times because it was so impactful. Like I had to go back and kind of look and especially there's, you know, the sub links where you can go out and and learn more about different parts of it. But I just, this was a really, really good article and it was very eye opening to see for historically, like how power has been coerced over time. Um, so I want to kind of start with what made you decide to write this article? Was this something that someone asked you to do or this is something that you've just been thinking about? Kind of talk to me about what your thought process was with that first. Yeah, so we tend to have a kind of group uh, process at ammo.com. And this article idea was not actually one that originated with me, but it did come out of a lot of conversations that we had had internally I think going back years, I mean, this and the, um, the other article, um, that came out that month, which was about neo-feudalism and, uh, you know, so we've, we have a lot of internal conversations about, um, emerging issues kind of just through the course of a normal work day even. And this is one of the articles that came out of a lot of discussions that we had had about, uh, just kind of the history of progressivism in America as a movement and the sort of like, I mean, I, I'm always like hesitant to use the language of religion to describe things that are political, because I think that, um, first of all, I think that the idea that, you know, what people might term religious fanatics have any kind of, um, real meaningful political power in this country is just like ridiculous. Right. Um, but all, but also the, you know, I just don't think anything is like religion except religion. So I think it's best to not really use those terms, but there is a, an explicitly religious quality about early progressivism. And I think that you can kind of see elements of that lineage within contemporary progressivism in the form of uh, the desire to create heaven on earth, I think is is fundamentally comes out of a religious impulse. Um, I think that the notion of the perfectibility of man comes out of, of that religious impulse. I think that the deep concern for kind of, what you do and how you live your private life comes out of that religious 
impulse. Uh, right. And I think it's all, you know, I mean, I think it's all very dangerous, obviously, but I also think that at this point, you know, I think that we have a lot of uh, reason to be hopeful about the next five to 10 years. I'm interested to hear what you're hopeful about, but we'll get to that in a little bit. I want to make it through this first and then you give me the white pill that I need at the end because right now it's not feeling real white pillish. So um, I am the white pill dispenser when I go on podcasts (laughs) because I just cannot believe that anybody is pessimistic about the short term, but let's, let's soldier on. Okay. Um, So you start off the article and I'm actually going to skip kind of the prelude part. I want to move to the part where you start talking about specifically about what you mean about righteousness. And you had a part in here um, and it says like our cause is quote unquote just, therefore the ends justify the means Um, and speak of the dangers of that. You know, I, I just think that, you know, who's, whose righteousness is better, right? Like what, at what point do we start evaluating, you know, me exerting my righteousness or what I think is a righteous cause over what you do, you know? And, and so is it just a public opinion? And once you've pulled it in your direction, then it becomes justifiable at that point. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts about that a little bit. Well, I think it's a, I think it's not not any one thing that uh, or or shouldn't be any way any. I mean that that's kind of the issue with these people is that they want to make the ultimate arbiter of all human morality the state. That's that is the problem. Um, I believe it was Rothbard who talked about how a healthy society doesn't need quite so many laws because it can yield, uh, uh, you know, wield a uh, social sanction very effectively. And I think that this is kind of the missing piece of the puzzle that a lot of people don't think about is that, you know, social disapproval can be a very, very powerful thing. But I think that, you know, basically what we are lacking in the West to combat this, uh, militant righteousness that we're encountering right now in the form of you know, wokeness and the COVID cult and things like that and new developments that, you know, certainly we'll, we'll see over time. Um, I think that what we're lacking is a strong civil society. I don't think that we have, you know, kind of social capital. I think the power is way too centralized. I think that we have lost any kind of community standards for behavior, culture, um, what's socially acceptable, what's not. And I think that those are things that are, those are problems that are not easily remedied, if indeed they can be remedied at all. And I'm not convinced that they can be. I'm not convinced that they can't be either. But right. um, I, I don't, you know, you know, how do we get, Take as a, as a kind of simple, stupid, low-hanging fruit example. How do we get uh, Main Street of Gary, Indiana, downtown booming again so that people in Gary, Indiana, you know, it's like evidence that there's that there's some kind of um, civic life and middle class and um, 
community in, in, in Gary, Indiana, because Gary, Indiana, if you haven't driven through it lately, looks roughly like somebody dropped a bomb on it. And, uh, you know, so how would you turn the clock back from the, the Gary, Indiana of today to the Gary, Indiana of 1965? Um, I don't, I don't think that you can actually turn the clock back. Um, but I think that you can move through the present difficulty and come up with a solution that's relevant and, and, you know, fitting to the time. And I think that without that kind of community and without that kind of decentralized power, uh, you really are going to a, a, a gun battle with a knife and you are setting yourself up to lose. And I think that people um, avoid these kinds of cultural and social questions at great peril. Yeah, because you you make a comment in in this particular section where you said righteousness is dangerous as a political force because of how certain it makes those infected with it. Um, what's more, political righteousness makes the stakes increasingly apocalyptic, allowing the ends to continually justify any means up to and including the death camp. And um, you make it very clear, like it's not hyperbole. Righteousness does not prohibit your political participation. It demands it and sees everything else about you as superfluous. So I thought that that particular section just caught me and it just really grabbed me because it's really true. And if you take even, I mean, we've seen this in many different parts of of the world and parts of society. And I say often right now, the weakest minds have the loudest voices and it feels like even though they don't have the majority, they do have the culture, they have the media, they have the means by which to influence, whereas other people don't. So you see in Gary, Indiana, um, you don't see the influence or the culture being shifted because nobody cares to take the effort to do it. Does that make sense? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that, um, I think there's definitely an element of like the, the emptiest minds have the loudest voices. Uh, I think that that's certainly true within like the media class. Um, and, to a certain extent, the political class, I mean, the political class, I think, is probably a little more self-aware. Um, I mean, I always kind of like divide these people because there's always the great debate, like, do they mean it or is it this cynical exercise in uh, power grabbing? And I don't think it really has to be either or. I think that there's probably people who are very cynical and people who are very sincere and maybe even some overlap between the two as contradictory as that sounds. But like I am, you know, as people who follow my um, Twitter account, which is at Sam Jacobs, 1776, I am not somebody who shies away from contradiction or thinks that contradiction is something that necessarily needs to be like resolved. I just think that there's tons of contradiction in the world. So like, why are we surprised when we encounter it? Um, right. But the 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 model I always kind of use for these people is uh, 
mostly because I think it's such a be- beautifully artistic encapsulation of what they what these people are and by that i mean like you know so there's a there's a concept called poetic truth and the best way that i have to articulate what poetic truth is um there's no such place as south detroit but you can't imagine uh born and raised in north detroit you can't imagine steve perry singing born and raised in west detroit um, so it has a, it's true, you know, it rings true. Uh, Ellsworth Tui from the Fountainhead is like kind of, I think the perfect villain that encapsulates the guy who's both a cynic and a true believer kind of at the same time. Um, and I think that there is that kind of sociopathic element to a lot of those people. But I mean, I think that one of the, like, things people evaluate incorrectly is that like the cynics are way less dangerous than the zealots. And I hope yes. that we kind of got at that in the article because like, um, this is a concept that I first encountered in William Burroughs where he talks about how like, you know, the whole, basically the whole reason that we never had nuclear war, uh, during the cold war was, was because of, bureaucratic hacks were just kind of sitting around waiting to get their pensions and yeah. blow the world up as opposed to like Cold right. War hawks who were ready to go because they were, they believed and there's not any, I mean, that's the thing that makes it so dangerous. And that's kind of the emptiest heads make the most noise aspect of it is like, no one is more sure than these people. And I yes. think that, one and thing not only that you, though, sure, you made a comment. You said righteousness isn't satisfied that you do and say the right things. You have to truly believe the right things. Right. I mean, it's the it's the whole um, it's the whole having you have to learn to love Big Brother thing. I mean, I think Orwell references are kind of overdone, but like I like Orwell, so I'll continue to make them. Um, there's, you know, I I think that that's very much there. Their MO for a lot for a lot of them, for the ones that right. are true believers, it's like you're there's no amount. I mean, this is the thing. If we want to use the religious terminology, the thing that their religion is missing is any method of redemption right. at all. There's no road back. I mean, it used to be you could like make your public appearance with Sharpton or Jackson and, you know, kind of hang your head low and wear sackcloth and ashes for a couple months and then be rehabilitated and come back to public life. But this um, process of atonement doesn't really exist anymore. And I think that like irrespective of the merits of the idea that everything everyone said and did until, you know, two years ago was irredeemably racist. Um, There's the, which obviously I think is idiotic. Um, I think that there's also the kind of separate question of for these people who believe this, what's your, you know, okay. So you're, you know, white. And so you're irredeemably racist and you're responsible for this and that. And it's like, so what, like, what do you do? Do you kill yourself? You know, like, what right, are you, yeah. what action are you supposed to take? Is this a question I always, anymore? is that the whole point? I mean, I think for some of, I think for some of the like wild element, more wild elements of it, I do think that they're, that they do go there. 
um, to the point of like, we need to get rid of all white people, but I don't consider it like, you know, serious, but I think that the, threat, I, yeah. I do think that the attacks and I do think they are attacks, you know, attacks on, on white people in the public schools and in the boardroom and these, you know, corporate critical race theory stuff. I mean, I think that like the debate about that and whether or not it's, it's anti-white or anti um, a bunch of people I think is also kind of silly because it's like, it's, I think it's primarily anti-white, but I also think it's pretty clear that like, you know, Asians and some Hispanics and black people who think incorrectly are going to quickly be moved into the, you're, you're just the same as white people camp. Right. Um, well, you're already you know, seeing that though. Right. No, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this multiracial, uh, white supremacy, con- which is like, God, what an idiotic, su- what a low rent Orwellian term. Cause that's the thing that's mm-hmm. like, this is one of these white pilling moments for me is like, that's, the, the the fact that they have that term is white pilling to me because that's their marketing department. That's what right. that's what the marketing department of woke capital over at the New York Times or the Washington Post or whoever it is that came up with that foolish term. That's what they came up with to explain like why Hispanics vote voted for Donald Trump or why Donald Trump increased his margin with black voters or, you know, why they always manage to find the 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 black guy to interview at a MAGA rally to get this kind of weird, um, you know, frankly, kind of racist, uh, you know, caricature to or whatever, you know, this like. I mean, it's not like they're going to go interview the the uh, the guy at the black the black guy at the MAGA rally as if he's like a real person with opinions and thoughts and you know, nuanced feelings about the world. He's just going to become the black guy at the MAGA rally. Um, Which the irony in that is, you know, they say that, well, I, I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> it's, it's just, you, you've literally created um, an example of racism by treating that person as if they're not smart enough to make decisions for themselves. Well, I think that there's, there, you know, there was this phrase like that's that started getting kicked around in the last 10 years that kind of fell into, into derision because of the people who were using it tended to be these kinds of like Nikki Haley, Mitt Romney kinds of Republicans, but it was Dems are the real racists. And I think like that's actually really true it when is. you properly understand that A, they like they historically they historically were the party of racism, which is definitely true and not like it's not some big own, but I think it does kind of inform where they're at now, because like the only way that they really know how to get people to the polls is by using some racial folk devil. And right now their racial folk devil is white people, you know, with the like asterisk, which I think is an important one. Of, of, yeah, and, you know, if you're the wrong kind of Hispanic or, you know, you're, you're, you're from an Asian family that's too affluent or you're, you know, you're a black conservative or what, whatever it is. I mean, they have all these like loopholes and ways that you're, you're not, you know, Joe Biden's like, you ain't black man or whatever stupid thing that he said. 
Um, they've got all these weird loopholes where they get to pull people out and put them into this, you know, othering category that they've created. That's that, you know, the primary whipping boy of which is white people. Um, but you know that, so I think that they really like in a very, very real way have continued the tactics of Jim Crow into the modern, uh, into the modern era. And I, you know, I, I think that like, I don't, I don't want to be clear that like, I'm not like some, you know, person way off in left field who thinks that the democratic party is like erecting racial gulags for whites or anything like that. Uh, but what I do think is that a lot of politics operates on simple quid pro quo and that what you're going to see is the, through the rewarding friends and punishing enemies dynamic that the you know goodies are going to decreasingly um, flow towards you know, whites in America and more towards the connect you know connected members of preferred racial groups because that's how that's how this stuff always goes and I think that's like you know always a big or can be anyway a big flaw in the way that people talk about this you know they talk about it as if like these programs benefit all uh, people from preferred you know, ethnic and sexual and gender and whatever else is on under the uh, you know, rubric of the great rainbow flag. Um, you know, they, they, but it's not as if this, these benefits are received widely. They're these sinecures at, you know, in academia and non-governmental organizations and um, bureaucratic, you know, cushy little bureaucratic numbers that everybody wants because they involve very little work and they're very difficult to get fired from. Um, you know, so it's not like the wealth is not shared once it's gotten this. And that I think is the thing that is always missing from this discussion is the degree to which this is like the, the wokeness and the CRT in particular and the gender stuff is very much driven by um, this kind of revolution in the professional and managerial classes. And so that's kind of what I mean, where it's tough, it's tough to tease out how much of it's cynical, how much of it's really genuine belief, because there's all kinds of people, you know, jockeying for an assistant undersecretary of the, of agriculture or some job you've never heard of and never thought about, but somebody has, and do they believe in equity? Yeah, they probably do. Do they also conveniently believe in the thing that allows them to elbow other people out of their way? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, okay. So I want to go back because you you mentioned Jim Crow. I almost jumped ahead. But I want to talk about um, one of the things that you write in here moving on a little bit where you – like the the headline of this particular section where you said righteousness enters the world stage in abolitionism. And um, you're talking about there, the beginning you said um, before the Civil War, the United States are, but after the war, the United States is. Will you elaborate on that a little bit? I, I, I understand what you're saying, but I just, for the audience, I kind of want you to to say where you're going with that and what you kind of think about that. Yeah, so that's not like my concept, and I don't know who originally said that, but it's actually somebody famous. And anytime I mention it, somebody tells me who it was. So you know, you can you can find me on I'm Twitter. I'm sure I could Google it. Yeah, tell me who who said it. But so basically, the federal government becomes 
far more powerful power becomes increasingly centralized and this is also what i mean by righteousness enters the world stage you know it's not as if political righteousness had never um been you know that there'd never been outbreaks of it in the past i mean people would say the crusades i don't i wouldn't characterize the crusades that way um i think i thought you did a really good job with the protestants though the pious I i think you did a really good job with that part well, that's the thing. That's what I was going to say. Like in the West, the main, I think, point of reference we have is probably the English Civil War and the um, German Wars of Religion, which were the thing that sent my family hot footing across the Atlantic Ocean in, you know, 16 whatever. But so that's the, you know, the, the religious strain um, is much more explicit at that point in time. Um, you know, and this is not like shade on, on, on Protestants because like I'm Catholic and I think people can perceive this as being me wanting to like get one over on the, on the Protestants or something. Um, and you know, there's like maybe a tinge of hold this L, but mostly like, I don't really, I couldn't, I'm not a sectarian person. Like I, I honestly don't care what. Um, denomination in any person subscribes to. I mostly think it, that it's important to have a set of eternal uh, religious values that stem from something other than the fads of liberalism. And I'm sort of, you know, how you figure that out is between you and God. It's May. I, I don't wade into it any further than saying that I think having a cohesive set of moral values for a society is, is important. And I think that, you know, what we broadly refer to as Judeo Christianity has done a very good job of that for 200 ish years um, in the United States. And I don't, you know, I don't care if you're Episcopalian or Pentecostal or uh, whatever. Um, But the fact is that, you know, pietist Christianity um, is associated with outbreaks of, um, and I, I hate like I hate I don't I actually don't hate using this term, but like I don't I just don't know what other term to use. And I don't want people to think that it's disrespectful, but uh, kookery, because I don't kind of know how right. else to describe it. And you know what? I'm a kook. So like it's it's cool, guys. I'm not I'm really not throwing shade here, but there's kind of like periodic outbreaks of uh, religious fanaticism in the United States. And there's and one of the recurring characters in this is Pietist Protestantism. Um, I am not suggesting that you know contemporary Pietist Protestants have any kind of responsibility or ideological affinity to this. To me, it's like you know six degrees of Kevin Bacon. It's like when people try and say that the neocons are Trotskyists because James Burnham was a Trotskyists in the 30s, you know, it's like it's really it's kind of a reach in my opinion. But from a historical perspective, there is a there is a shared lineage. Um, so that's kind of where, and I think that you can see elements of it. And I also want to say, you know, just for clarity's sake, that I think that in in its religious expression, you know, I don't have anything um 
bad to say about it. You know, as a Catholic, I may have like theological ob- objections to what they believe, but like, I don't think there's anything malignant about piet- pietist Protestantism. I think that there's something extremely malignant about the rem- the kind of vestigial remnant of pietist Protestantism that that exists within progressivism today. Um, and I think that, you know, again, like when we go back to the Civil War and abolition, this is very, very um, ex- explicit at this time. And what I say when it enters the world stage, it's very related to this, you know, is is our distinction with the United States. And that is that it enters the world stage because they take over the United States. You know, the abolitionists, right. I mean, they're not like running everything, but... Um, they occupy a great many positions of power and they occupy a great many positions of power, particularly in the South and the South are defeated people. And so they're very, very easy to push around. And so what we see in the South and like, you know, this is also the point where I, I also like to like clarify to people that if you're forming some picture in your head of me as some Confederate apologist, um, you have boy, have you missed the mark. I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island. I have absolutely no skin in the game of like rehabbing the Confederacy. Uh, I could, I could care less. I have ancestors who fought on the union side and hooray. It's nice to win wars. But other than that, like I don't have any ax to grind about, about this. Um, Did you feel like, hold on. I want to touch on that for a second. Did you feel like, because I felt like reading it, you felt like you had to give like footnotes to each thing that you said. Like there's, I think there's a part where you're like, just because one doesn't like slavery. And then you, you were like, and to be clear, we don't like slavery. Like I, I wondered if you felt like you had to continue to do that so that people didn't think that you were trying to justify it or say that it was good or whatever. I think that, you know, I think it's kind of like a necessity of, of the type of writing that we do and just kind of the age that we live in. And right. I also think that. Cause I could see somebody delivering the point can be useful. Or yeah. I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried about that at all. Like, like at all. Um, but I, I, you know, I hate being misunderstood. Right. Um, and that's, I think partly why I always take these asides. I mean, the civil war is probably the thing that I make the most asides on um, mm-hmm. because it's like, I think, you know, what do you think about the Civil War? Well, I think it was about slavery, uh, but right. that doesn't mean that I think it was some righteous crusade to free anybody. It wasn't. Uh, I think that this, the Northern soldiers behaved horribly in the South, but welcome to modern warfare. And, uh, I, you know, I think that uh, I, I'm glad that I live in a, in, a, in a country that goes from sea to shining sea. Um yeah. There's a part where you talk about, but I think that having like an analysis of the abolition movement, you know, and I, and I'm glad that the, you know, and I'm glad and very proud that the United States, um, and I know people can quibble about this and yes, I'm like aware that, you know, in Mali or whatever, there's, there's open slave markets and things like that. But like, you know, the United States ending slavery was basically the end of slavery. Um, and, and I think that that's great. And I know that there's people who, you know, would take exception to that. And I'm aware that the ending slavery part was kind of a happy accident. Um, right. But 
you know, I, I, I just, I can't, um, I can't like justify owning, uh, other, other human beings on, from moral perspective. I also think that like, from practical social perspective that like slavery is intensely socially corrosive, um, and is bad for that reason. Um, but I also, you know, don't think that anything about American slavery was uniquely evil. And I also am not convinced that like slavery was the greatest evil of human history. I think it was kind of like the norm for most of human history. Um, and right. we can, you know, think that that's unfortunate and maybe it is, but there's nothing <laughs> United States and its predecessors in the colonies, like didn't invent anything new here. They just right. fought one of the bloodiest wars in human history to end it. So it's my long winded, like, so that's another, you know, no, no, no. Take I, on the civil war. That's made everyone mad. <laughs> They're going to. They're going to leave some comments. You're gone again. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, one of the things uh, that I thought was interesting about this, and I mean, I, I'm not disputing it, but the way that you talk about um, Lincoln, his, his goal, and this is where you tie it back to righteousness, um, his goal was to save the union. So um, – and you say in here, you know, if it had been more beneficial to that end to have more slavery or have half and half or whatever, it didn't matter what it was going to be. He would have advocated for it if it meant saving the union. And right. Sure. And I think that it like, I mean, I think that that's kind of like when I say the civil war was about slavery, what I mean is kind of that you know there was no like way that the united states was going to continue being and it's there's no other you know there's not to my knowledge any other country that is comparable in this regard because like yeah other countries had you know contemporary countries of that time had slaves and had slavery and but it wasn't like half the country was was run by slavers and you know the entirety of their uh, political life revolved around tap dancing around this like difference between the the North and the South. I mean, like when you, you know, you study American history, like from 1776 to 1861, like this is all they do is, is constantly try and paper this thing over that there's no way to, to paper over, um, you know, but the, but, but that's the thing is like, the question then becomes, you know, what do you, what, like, what do you do as a uh, victorious nation? And I actually think that as a victorious nation with the elephant in the room of the uh, reconstruction era aside, that the North was pretty magnanimous in their uh, victory. Uh, again, with the giant asterisk of 12 years of reconstruction, but right. the Reconstruction era is no is noteworthy for that. I mean, it sticks out like a sore thumb because, like, the Reconstruction era ends, and the mood of the country, which had kind of been here anyway, but like the you know the end of Reconstruction is almost like this vi this victory dance for the for the uh, for the reconcilers 
who who were that was mostly the prevailing mood in the country was like the war was a great tragedy we're glad it's over what can we do to move move past it as quickly as we possibly can and just get back to being a country again um and you know it was only during the reconstruction period and only under the reconstruction governments particularly the state governments in the south but also the federal government under grant um where you know the idea of punishing the south not the slaveholders mind you because no one was ever prosecuted for slavery um not the slaveholders but the south and i think that that punishing the slaveholders um is kind of like iffy enough because it's an ex it's an ex post facto thing it's like how are you going to punish a guy for doing something that was normal human behavior at the time that he was doing it um but the 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 uh, you know but to punish like the south is a whole other kettle of fish because then you're talking about you're not just talking about the slave owners you're not just talking about the troops you're talking about everybody you're talking about you know everybody who's not politically connected you're talking about even maybe you know in to use an example, Tennessee, uh, Tennessee was a hotbed of union, unionist activity during the Civil War, despite being in the Confederacy. It was like their, um, it was like the Confederacy's Missouri. They were never confident that they held it. And um, they, you know, uh, because it was, it had like the least slavery and the most freeholders. And it just, it was, it was a, um, it was the most, you know, the most Republican Confederate state, and you know, I, I, and 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 that's the, you know, that's kind of the uh, the thing is like they don't just want to punish like even people who are are actively responsible for the things that they're outraged about. It's like they just kind of want to punish everybody, everybody, um, right? And that's where it becomes particularly particularly dangerous because like if you want to punish people for things they've done we can have a discussion about whether or not they should be punished for those things but if you like think somebody should be punished just because they exist you know there's not there's where you know it's like it's like trying to uh climb the sears tower from the outside there's like there's nothing to hold on to there's no place to grip it also goes back to what you were saying about penance. Like there's no way to say you're sorry, right? Like you're going to punish an entire group of people that may not even participated or agreed with it, but you're still getting punished because you're just here. Right. And that was, I think, the situation a lot of the time under Reconstruction because there was like a very clear, simple, easy way for uh, reconciliation during the pre-Reconstruction era. Um, and then during, you know, under Reconstruction, the goalposts get radically moved to the point where it's like your total and complete um, submission is now what we require. You're not, like, not even surrender, which is like a, a totally, you know, that's just like lay down your arms and you're now we want you on you know, your knees you're, you're, loving us. Right, exactly, right, exa- exactly, exactly. And, and, you know, the measures to kind of, um, change the, the the cultural mores and the way in the way of life and you know i think um i i i think that we can like acknowledge that 
um, the Freedmen's Bureau and other agencies probably did a lot of good for freed black slaves in the in the postbellum South. But we can also say that the Reconstruction regime, kind of in its total analysis, was was tyrannical and very very oppressive to the people of the South. And I would argue that one of the reasons why they felt so empowered to do that was because, well, first of all, because they just won a war um, and nothing breeds a thirst for victory more like a victory. Um, and also just, you know, this, this confidence that they, you know, we, we know, you know God, we know God is on our side kind of, thing and you know i know that there's probably lots of people listening to this who think god is on their side and and i also think that but like it mostly for me makes me more self-critical right makes me question like am i doing the right thing and is this you know what is best in that in that regard rather than like being very um confident in how other people should live their lives um I want to continue to chronologically move through this article. Um, and the next part is really interesting for me because it it's the prohibition, like where you talk about temperance and, and prohibition. And I would say you, you make a comment on here that it's one of the most overlooked eras in American history. I, I would definitely agree with temperance. I think prohibition obviously gets a lot of – you know, you say it and people automatically think, okay, well, there was no booze, right? Like it, it just, but you do say you're like a period of brief blip of madness requiring no explanation. <laughs> and that is often what it feels like, but I did not realize, and I'll just be a hundred percent transparent. I actually learned um, quite a bit reading this section. I didn't even know that there was a group of individuals called the dries. Like I, I didn't realize there was a whole movement of individuals who believed that it was wrong for people to to drink and that that was what was leading to bad behavior. I, I didn't realize there was a, a behavior element behind it. So um, talk about that a little bit for me. Well, yeah, I mean, the Prohibition era is interesting for a few, a few reasons and the temperance movement for a few reasons. I mean, first of all, it's because they thought they could ban the use of the most commonly used, longest historically attested drug in human history. You know, right. it's not like they banned morphine that was, I mean, they did, but you know, it's not like, it's not even remotely the same as banning morphine, which was invented in like the 1870s or something. And which, you know, comparatively fewer people used. I mean, I know people used it in cough medicine and things like that, but like there weren't millions of people coming home from work every day and like throwing back a, bottle of uh children's laudanum or whatever you know opioid you could get at the drugstore back then um so the, it's a massive reach because they're you know in this in abolition they're just kind of dismantling this economic system and temperance they're really intruding on people's private lives right um and the idea is if we just get people to stop drinking that all of these social ills that are related to drinking will go away. Of course, what happens is that, you know, people just start drinking bathtub gin and finding ways to get, um, 
quasi legal wine and things like that. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, I think that it was a gigantic and colossal failure. Um, I think that the, I mean, basically like it's, it's the the reason that prohibition was flawed, um, was because Westerners, do not have the stomach for the measures that would be required to get people to stop doing uh, drugs, like full stop drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I think the state can get people to stop doing drugs, I, but you know, you, you have to live in Singapore. Yeah. And you know, where they hand out the death penalty for like a, having a brick of heroin. Um, Peter Hitchens talks about this. Like you can, you can get people to do just about anything if you have, you know, the stomach for getting the state to lean on them hard enough to get them to do it. Um, right. But, you know, this is obviously far outside of the norms of um, Western, you know, culture. But we got a lot of things out of Prohibition. We got the mob. We got the first example of militarized police. And no one really quit drinking. And that's the right. other kind of um, interesting part about it. It feeds in a lot of the white pills is like, I think that the COVID regime has a lot, you know, bears a lot of resemblance to prohibition in that people that's just exactly aren't. exactly what I was getting ready to say. Keep going. People just aren't going to do it. You right. know, like it's, do you think every person who opposed prohibition was a libertarian or anything remotely resembling it? No, mm-hmm. they just wanted a beer. Right. And that's why it fails. Just let me live my life, bitch. No. <laughs> yeah, right. No, exactly. Like, I mean, it's like you'll put up. I mean, I hate the TSA with like the a burning fury of 10,000 sons. I've, I've gotten into shouting matches with TSA agents. I hate them. But it's not remotely the same as like, you know, the temperance squad coming out to bust me for going to a, a bar or have a have a, you know, glass of whiskey or whatever um it's just not the same you know the the level of intrusion on your private behavior in your private life the you know following you everywhere you go it's so intrusive in a way that you know getting your your balls groped at the airport as humiliating and and perverse as it is just doesn't compare and people just you know, weren't going to do it. And, and I think that there's like a concept, the name of which escapes me, but there's like this idea that when you start having too many stupid laws, people stop obeying the good laws that you have. And it kind of leads to a greater disorder because people just begin disrespecting the laws in, in toto because of, you know, too many unjust laws but i think in this case it's kind of just the the one and um you know uh, my home state of rhode island never actually passed the constitutional amendment to uh to enforce prohibition um but you know this was like this and the early progressive movement the overlap with the pietist protestantism is still very very much explicitly there it's not, mm-hmm. you know, oh, there's some kernel of it that remains. It's like, no, there's people coming out from, you know, whatever the, the, you know, the holiness movement or the Adventists or, 
you know, who I don't mean to offend anybody who's of those denominations. It's just like, this is just a historical fact that that's what the religious wing of the, uh, the, the early progressive movement was comprised of. And we deal with a lot of the stuff from the early progressive movement to this day. I mean, one of my favorite bogeyman is the FDA. Like I, I hate the FDA. Um, we got that then we got, uh, let's be honest, Sam, we hate damn near every alphabet agency in the federal government, or at least I do. Yeah. I mean, I like, I did a podcast this week where I was like, I don't know, I guess the marshal service is like, I guess they need that. They need somebody to ferry federal prisoners around like that sounds reasonable, but yeah, I don't like any of the, I don't really like it. I mean, I don't like the administrative state or any of the stuff they do. And that's, and that's the thing too, is like, because a lot, so much of this, this in the contemporary terms um, and what's going on now, not just in terms of like COVID or CRT or any of these super specific things that are going through the news at any given day. Um, you know, this kind of like interscene warfare for these bureaucratic positions you know that is why do you think that the that the Biden regime is using the CDC to enforce their uh, diktats in housing or OSHA to do a vaccine mandate and not doing it through legislative channels? It's because, because they know that it'll legis- never make it through. Well, it'll never make it through, but they also like they have. I mean, this was Trump's big problem was that. This is like, you know, the deep state is, I, I don't know why people don't just call it the federal bureaucracy because that that's what it is. And it doesn't have the same connotation of like that I'm 10 seconds away from talking to you about how, you know, 10,000 pedophile bloodsuckers have been arrested by secret president Donald Trump and are being held in, you know, Guantanamo or or whatever kind of foolishness. Um, but wait, trust the plan, Sam. Yeah. I mean, I got a lot to say about that as you can imagine, but the, the, you know, the, the, the point is that (laughs) Trump did not have the ability to work the bureaucracy, which is where a lot of these true believers go. And I would suspect that a good, goodly percentage of them, have their souls suck whatever soul they had to begin with suck dry through the process of being in these bureaucracies. Cause I do think there's kind of like a grind to all of them, even though there's a, you know, it's, it, you can't really get fired and there's not, you know, a lot of work as you and I would understand it, but I think there's probably a lot of busy work that you're expected to do. Um, and you know that's who 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 in large part occupies these bureaucratic positions and academic sinecures and things like this so when you know biden assumes the mantle of power he has people that are ready to ready to go even kind of without his say so i mean i don't know how much happens with his say so um anyway but like you know, all they need to know is that in a in a forgiveness, not permission sort of way, there's not going to be a lot of requests for permission or, 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 or sorry, a lot of requests for forgiveness anymore. 
because they can just, you know, do as they please. And um, the person at the top of the federal bureaucracy that they're working within is, you know, trained and steeped in these same, in the same culture, in the same training, in the same background. And, you know, I mean, I think that what's going on at the Justice Department right now is a really good example of it. Like Merrick Garland is a, a, a <laughs> Don't bureaucrat. Don't even get me started bureaucrat. on that fucking piece of shit. Yeah. I'm yeah. Sorry. And like, you know, I'm all sorry. they need, I'm not offended by it. Um, he, you know, all he, all, all they need in the Justice Department is Merrick Garland or some other mucky muck to say, go after parents or and go so after gun owners or what or whatever and then there's this army of you know people and then you've got trump who, who will write you know ask for executive orders to be drafted and they'll sandbag him by writing them so that they're, they're not going to withstand legal challenges right. um so this is what you're up against that's the that's the to me like you know it's not even really the big black pill. The black pill, the big black pill is like how many people we're seeing in the world today, right now, as you and I talk about this, who are willing participants Happy on a about spectrum it. of enthusiasm, to be yeah. sure, but willing, willing participants. And I don't actually think that this is a recent development. But I think that the um, the volume and the pitch of it has taken a new kind of, um, you know, level. And we need to be uh, very aware of the federal bureaucracy and who's in it, who's who, you know, who it serves, and what the um i don't even want to say philosophy but like the you know the what's the what's the kind of raison d'etre for these people what's the thing that motivates them what's the thing that makes them want to take your guns take your kids take you know take your land take your car um why do they want to do that I why do they feel that that's okay about, i i used to think it was about power and and control like they wanted they wanted power i think less that it is that now and and they want long standing certainty reinforcing their own beliefs i i think that it's well, almost to the point where they don't even believe the things that they're saying right now they need affirmation from other people to be sure that what they're doing is right. I think, again, we need to kind of divide these people into different buckets and, and, and acknowledge also that the, the, the different buckets are like, you know, there's a spec, there's a spectrum to this and it's not all one and not all the other. I mean, I think that, that definitely power and control and economics is definitely part of it. Um, I think that for a lot of people at the top, whether or not they're actively aware of it or not, um, is relevant to me, but I think that the idea of turning the United States into some bizarre, uh, woke, you know, Chinese slave labor camp with, you know, Twitter Stasi, uh, 
and Amazon Prime deliveries. Um, I think that really is the goal. And I think that for some of them, you know, it really is just power. I think some of them, like most of the world's great villains, think that they're doing the the best thing that they possibly can do for the world. And it's their certainty of that that makes them so uh, dangerous. But I do think that also for a particular... I mean, this is the thing is like, it breaks down a lot of different ways. Like there's, you know, this kind of like cynic versus true believer breakdown spectrum. And then there's the, you know, top to, I mean, you can almost like visualize it like the, like the, like the uh, political grid, like on one side you have the cynic and on the other side you have the idealist. And at the top you have, you know, the, the ultra elite. And at the bottom you have the, um, you know, in the middle, you'd have like the strivers and at the bottom you would have like, you know, the toadies, people who don't even like have hope of getting some kind of media career or something out of this, but they just, you know, they just get something out of, you know, parroting the regime. Um, right. The Jennifer yeah, Rubin I mean, what like animates it? Of immediately, like when you say that. What now? The Jennifer Rubens of the world, like that's who I think of immediately when you say that. Well, Jennifer Rubin just strikes me as a unhinged, crazy person, frankly. I mean, um, who just parrots the narrative? <laughs> she she does, but she does it in such an insane way. You know, like the I don't know anyone who believes in Russia as much as Jennifer Rubin. But there is this kind of like, I mean, yeah, with the true believers, there's this way that, you know, because it's like um, she's rolling over in her grave every time I invoke her because I'm I'm very much an anti-rationalist and an anti-materialist. But like, you know, Ayn Rand really was on the money with the notion that um, you just can't like oppose reality and hope that everything's going to be fine. And I think that for you know, Ruben types or even just like, you know, your crazy wine aunt on Facebook or whatever, there's a certain kind of unmooring from reality that comes as from being, from subscribing to these, this politicized righteousness, particularly now, because like, you know, if we could bring it like through the progressive era, you know, into the modern day, like what are their, what hills do they want to die on? And like the hills they want to die on are men can be women and women can be men. Um, everything white people have ever done in world history is irredeemably evil. Um, you know, we're stolen. Doesn't really matter if, if families are intact uh, in fact, you know, you could have a family with three dads and two moms and that's fine. And so when you like, or even, I mean, in the, even if it's just the more beltway wonkish stuff in Ruben's case, like the Russia gate thing, like the, I mean, and, it, and it's, it mirrors like, I mean, I think Q is like QAnon is basically Russia gate for, you know, right wing boomers instead right-wing of left wing yeah. boomers. And it's whole, like, you have to believe in increasingly, um, an increasingly unlikely series of things to continue right. believing this. And so you, 
you know, how like moored in reality can you possibly be if you think that Donald Trump is secretly the president? Right. Because um, he's not. <laughs> you know, on the flip side, like how kind of like how much connection can you have with reality a as a concept? Like just kind of in general, how moored in reality are you? if you think that men and women are interchangeable parts and not in this like kind of bland way that people are forced to pretend they believe in because we live in this, you know, post-feminist tabula russa, everything is, you know, a man can do anything a woman can do kind of society. Um, I'm not counting that. I'm counting the people who like really think that men and women are just kind of interchangeable parts and it's just, you know, makeup and clothes is all you need to, and then maybe some cosmetic surgery is like all you, all you need to um, become a woman or become a man. Like, you know, these are not people who are going to have a firm mooring in reality because, because believing such things is so wildly divorced from reality. Now here is the, you know, the, the, the black lining on my silver cloud. Um, and that is that, yes, they are in fact unmoored from reality. And yes, you cannot build a society that lasts on principles that are so diametrically variance with fundamental principles of reality. But you can build one that hangs, hangs around for 100 years. You know, the Soviets got 80 years. What do you think that the, uh, the uh, elites of today how long do you think they could make their regime last with things like the internet for surveillance, you know, um, right. things like your Alexa or whatever. And then Twitter as they're like, you know, mob to throw at you or, and then these increase, you know, I mean, take that kind of like intrusiveness to the nth degree and them winning temporarily. I mean, that could be 500 years. Right. We don't, we don't know. So I don't want to, uh, I think people need to be really, really aware of what the stakes are because I think that we live in an age when it's possible to construct a nightmarishly totalitarian state that, you know, Orwell or Huxley or whoever you, prefer to reach for um, couldn't possibly have imagined because they couldn't have imagined the technology. We talk in this, uh, this article on, on neo-feudalism about, uh, you know, things like directed energy weapons. And there's always the like, you know, the nukes thing, which I know people want to go, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not going to use nukes. No, they'll use nukes against you. They won't use them against the Vietnamese. They won't use them against the Afghans. They'll use them against you because you're the actual threat to their power, you know, in a way that like some province out in the middle of nowhere that you get rare earth minerals from it, but like, all right, cool. We can, you know, we get them from Africa. Like there's different places to get them. Um, but the Imperial core is the, is where the real threat is. And um, so, and I think that they're on more, their unmooring from reality also makes them like, there's another reason why they're 
particularly dangerous. I mean, it's not like, you know, I think that morally healthy people, when they see great outrage and injustice in the world, try and convince other people that there's great moral injustice in the world. And I think that um, morally unhealthy people respond to injustice in the in the world by uh finding injustice everywhere right there's a when you start talking about like righteousness trending toward totalitarianism um and you draw the correlation you're like um righteousness enforced in america first attempted to tackle economics through abolitionism and then morality through temperance and then now a political problem through progressivism and i you you touch on it's like why some people have you know more than others health wealth fame beauty and this whole concept of equality versus equity is is very interesting to me and you know i mean you know me right i'm i'm a very big fan of Ayn Rand. I know a lot of people don't like her. They find her controversial, but I'm an incredibly selfish person, period. I I do not ask you to do anything for me, right? Like your responsibility is for you and yours, right? And And I expect the same for myself. I'm not going to ask you to do something for me. I will do it myself. And I don't know and maybe like I'm just very different in that regard, but I don't know how he shifted from us. I, I think that used to be the norm. Like I think about like my grandfather, my dad. I think about these influential people that I had in my life, and that was just what you did. You did what you had to for yourself and your family. And I don't know when we shifted and and where that comes from, where if you have it, I should have it too whether I work for it or not. Well, I think that there's like definitely an increase in what we could term rent seekers and useless eaters and, um, you know, people who are non productive and, uh, and don't want to be productive and resent those who are productive. Um, and I would ultimately attribute that to, uh, atomization, social atomization, fatherlessness, the end of civil society in the West and its replacement primarily by the state, but also by the media. I mean, there's like a C.S. Lewis quote, I believe it's something effective. If you take uh, kings away from people, they're going to worship uh, celebrities and musicians and criminals. And we are there. Um I, I think that there's just kind of like, I don't know how you approach that question or a lot of political questions that kind of go to the core of social dysfunction without addressing, um, you know, the, the, the social corrosion and the lack of social cohesion in the United States. And then the question becomes like, well, how do you get it back? I, I have no idea. And do you think um, we can? Like I know you said earlier, you you're not convinced one way or the other. But I mean, it, let's say in a perfect world, you had the ability to say, okay, I think if we did this, we could. Do what would that solution be? 
Um, I, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, I'm much more of a like finding problems guy than a finding solutions guy. I mean, I think <laughs> that like what they're doing in uh, Hungary right now by like paying and listen very closely to the words I'm using intact married families to have children. Uh, it's a benefit that's paid out in a housing deposit. So like basically if you get married, have a certain number of kids, stay married, you're uh, the wife and it always goes to the wife so that the husband can't, you know, like abscond with it. Um, do you get like $20,000 or something to put a down payment on a house? Um, I, I don't know. You know cool let's, wa- let's I'm sorry. I said, how fucking cool is that? Yeah. I mean, I think like keep an eye on that. Does it work? I don't know. It sounds like it might. Um, Richard Nixon. I'm a big fan of Richard Nixon. Um, he wanted to basically institute a negative income tax uh, that would have eliminated the welfare state by uh, subsidizing the working poor. And so there would still be, you know, welfare, but like it was really bare bones. And the way that you got out of poverty was you got a job, you started working at some low skill, low wage job. And because you were so low paid, you got a, you know, supplement that was paid out of income tax because you receive negative income tax because your income is so low. Um, right. You know, I think something like that would we, we if 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 Nixon had been able to get that, I think we'd be living in a very uh, very different world right now. Um, I basically think that any policy that encourages family formation is a step in the right direction. I think anything that gives people um, social bonds that are not mediated through the state and not mediated through consumption are good things. And I think that there's a variety of sort of creative ways that we can um, encourage that. Um, One, one kind of like ultra specific thing that I think would be really helpful um, in terms of rebuilding some social capital and giving some economic clout to average Americans would be uh, the end of the monopoly of the AFL-CIO, which they effectively have uh, under Taft-Hartley over labor organization in this country. And, um, you know, younger me is like screaming from the inside that I'm about about what I'm about to say, but like um, these, these company unions that they have at like Whole Foods and stuff are actually far more democratic than AFL-CIO unions and um, are not legal in many states um, and would, you know, legalizing them would kind of present a window for opportunity of allowing people to organize in the workplace, which would allow them to kind of push back against things like COVID protocols and um, CRT coming into the, into the workplace. Though I don't, I, you know, I, I think that uh, unions will probably, you know, traditionally AFL CIO unions will probably play a, play a role in the COVID stuff, not so much in, in CRT. Um, but I basically like think that, you know, things are more or less moving in the right direction in smaller ways and that people are just not, you know, where is the, this is the way I always boil it down. is like, where's the big victory for the Biden right. regime? Where is it? What have they done? What have they accomplished? 
infrastructure bill. It's a third of what they wanted. That's his big hit. He got a third of what he wanted. I just don't see it. You know, unless well, you think that they're these omnipotent godlike people who can get any any every each and every whim that passes their fancy, which I don't. Um, they can want to do a lot do. of things. Yeah, that, I mean, people do. Like, remember, remember the six hundred dollar bank account thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, they're not going to do this. And within a week, it was ten thousand. Just still too low, obviously. I mean, anything is too low, but like, you know, and now it's like, when was the last we heard about any of that? It's my I think I would have heard if that passed or moved forward in any way whatsoever. Maybe it still will. I think that it did. Was it in the infrastructure bill? Um, I think it was passed as an executive order. I don't want to lie to you, though, so I'm going to look it up. (laughs) Because I thought they were actually going to do that one through the legislature, but now I want to know. I know I'm Googling feverishly. Um, yeah, I can't find anything about it other than Dems want. On October 22nd, the Treasury amended the proposal. Yeah. Um, and it says after initially proposing to track bank accounts with more than $600 of inflows or outflows on the Treasury. They offered a new threshold, more than $10,000 in transfers in a given year would flag an account for reporting to the IRS. Wage and salary deposits do not count toward that threshold. Proposal. Right. Yeah. Proposal. Um, call call me says, when it moves. Well, hold on. It says it's already the law. So already, what does it say is already the law? It says we are literally talking about enforcing the law that is already on the books. Right. But by which they mean like the, yeah, I, I, yes, they're going to, they're going to use that method to, they want to use that method to enforce the law. Right. Right. So the law is the tax code as it currently exists. And they want to use that to enforce the law, which is like, Never in a million years going to happen. And when it does, you can go on Twitter at Sam Jacobs 1776 and tell me what a moron I am. But I just do not see this seeing the light of day because of the thing, because it's, you know, the prohibition analogy again. Right. It's just too much. There is, you know, I know that we've like gotten used to seeing like, is there any limit to what Americans will endure at the hands of the state? Yeah, there is. We're at it. <laughs> but We're are there. we though? Like, yes. Are we there? Yes. I, and I and I ask that not. I'm not asking. Like, I, I just I keep seeing. Oh, people just keep caving. Nobody stands up. I'm not. Not nobody. What are you talking? What, 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 what news are you reading? Parents are like rioting at school board meetings. I am Southwest one of them. pilots won't fly. They just elected Youngkin in Virginia, which is like, I don't put too much stock in elections or elected officials, but the degree to which the goalposts have moved for what constitutes a, nor- a boring normie Republican have moved to anti-critical race theory warrior uh, Greg Youngkin or Glenn Youngkin or whatever his name is, um, the elections in 2022 are going to get us 
I think, first of all, they're going to get a, a strong Republican majority, but I also think that they're going to get a whole lot more of what I think, you know, we can non-pejoratively call the, the more fringe elements of the Republican Party, which are, that's kind of where I live. So I'm happy to see more of the Matt Gates's and, you know, MTGs and Lauren Boebert's um, and Rand Paul's and, you know, people like that in the Congress and the Senate, um, I just, I see all of the momentum, you know, going against these people because their lies are too brazen and their moves towards the freedom of individuals is too extreme. It's just too damn much, too damn fast. And also there's like, you know, what are they going to, you know, like, what are they going to do about the whole, you know, the, 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 like the, 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 what was previously the hypothetical situation of like high school girls being sexually assaulted in public bathrooms by boys who now has think become they're girls or whatever. One County three times. Right. And now we have like the actual example of it. So it's not like. You know the past, the 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 past events of the 2010s when a lot of this stuff kind of came up before COVID. That that's kind of all. You know, I'm not convinced that that's all water under the bridge because I've been convinced, kind of since forever, that like the trans thing was going to be too much. It was going to be too much, and why was it going to be too much? It was going to be too much because of little girls in locker rooms and high school girl sports. That was it. It was right. like the, the, the idea of some possible probable sexual pervert sharing a bathroom with your daughter was just no from people. No, mm -hmm. my, my goodwill and tolerance does not extend this far. Um, and you know, the other, um, aspect of it is like yeah i mean like girls go to girls get scholarships because they they win all state at track it's a it's a big vector for girls to go to college and i just didn't see that um older feminists and older women and, and you know by which i even mean women my age i'm i'm 40 um you know I did not see them quietly stepping aside for a bunch of dudes. Right. I just didn't think it was going to happen. And all um, outward appearances point to that it's not. And yeah, I know, you know, there was the, the man at the Olympics who competed as a woman and there's these guys in, you know, Connecticut who run track and whatever. And, and they win their lawsuits and little things happen and there's these little victories. But, I think that, you know, I don't think that there's any, um, I think that this is all institutional support and that there's nothing organic about it and that the uh, the institutional kind of inorganic psyoped propagandized part of it, it, it rests on very, very shaky ground. And I think that that's kind of true of most of the things they push. The COVID cult, I think, stands on very, very shaky ground at this point. The gender 
radicalism, I think also, and the, and the CRT also. And I think that those are kind of, you know, the three, um, defining issues of discourse today. And I don't see the left really winning on any of them. I see them winning these very, very superficial victories and nothing of substance, nothing that really moves the ball forward. Now the flip side is that like, we're not really moving the ball forward either. We're just kind of playing defense. But I think that that is also turning around with stuff like, um, you know, I think that I, I, I don't think that everyone in the Republican party is a, is a fighter for human liberty and the American way of life. But I think that there, I think that we can with a straight face, possibly the first time in my adult life, say that some of them are. And I just don't know what other kind of vector we, you know, I don't know what other tools we got in the shed at this point, but I think that, you know, the ones, the ones we have are pretty good. You made a comment and you, you wrap up this article, um, and it says weaponized righteousness cannot be reasoned with. And it it makes me wonder, like, as we're talking about how we we feel like it, it doesn't have a lot of ground, it's really hard for me to turn on um, a television show in modern time and not be slammed in the face with over-representation of – of a small percentage of the population, right? The the, the 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 mythical the mythical mixed race family that occupies every single ad that's on television, you know, mysteriously one day every, every you know, yes. Not this, even so much. I, I was, and which, like, to be clear, I'm not like offended by mixed race families. I just find the like, <laughs> you know, all, all of a sudden out of nowhere, like every every uh, family and every ad is, you know, it's like. To, it's it's just it's so it's it's so pathetic you know it's such a, it's it's so pathetic is what that's what i don't like about it i don't like it because i don't dislike it because i'm like a racist who's like you know off- offended by the idea of mixed race families i could care less um it, it it just like it's it's more like it irritates me in this in this like you know when you encounter leftists online and they're and they'll say things like ha 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 does this trigger you snowflake and it's right. like you know, it's it's irritating, but it's not irritating for the reasons that they're trying to irritate you, and right. and it's a similar thing with the like the the woke the wokeness and ads everywhere now is like it's like I'm not like offended by this. I just find it I, I I'm like slightly amused and kind of like like irritated by this um very like ham fisted way that came out of nowhere and now is everywhere to like you know, represent this as like, this is what the average American family looks like or something. Um, yeah, that stuff's like, I mean, I, 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 I don't watch television, which I don't say is like a flex. Um, Cause I know that's like a thing people do, but I just don't like, I can't, I can't tolerate it. I mostly can't tolerate it because of the ads. And uh, otherwise, like, I mean, I like old television shows, but I can't like imagine sitting in front of a TV and, watching my three sons or whatever. But, uh, you know, the, the, when I do catch it, 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 like, it does strike me how quickly they've moved all the ads to, to like, I mean, when I was watching the Olympics, right. Like that was when I was watching television and, uh, they changed the lifelong brands in a, in less than six months. 
Like you had Aunt Jemima couldn't be on the fucking syrup bottle anymore. Right. And then they, and it was funny was I wish they hadn't changed it because they changed it back to Aunt Jemima, but she's not on the label because, because we can't like black women aren't allowed to be cooks. Um, Right. I mean, the weirdest manifestation of this was like on a product. Well, the weirdest manifestation of this was like in the. I'm not like a huge like Marvel Marvel movie guy, but like I I these you know minor controversies kind of hit my radar as they flare up. And there was this one where, um, you know, it was it was racist to have the um, Chinese guy in the Doctor Strange movie be some kung fu fighting badass, which is like. How kind of how ridiculous is that? But um, but then when they then they then they and then they made Iron Fist, which is like a white dude, and that was racist because he was a white dude doing karate. You know, so it's like there's no way to win on any of this stuff, right? So, well, and that's what you say. I, I mean, you make it very clear on here that um, they're a group of people who are not worth communicating with. No, I don't think they are. I don't think they are. I mean, I, I'm not a facts and logic guy. I'm not a debate me guy. Um, if leftists approach me on, you know, Twitter or whatever, I just mostly want to humiliate them because I think that, um, you know, first of all, it's fun, uh, and second of all, I think that I, I think it's more effective because I think that for the majority of people, the Opinions that they will have are more likely to be uh, fashionable than they are correct. And the big struggle is making your ideas something that people want to ostentatiously adopt um, because it's, you know, cool. And, uh, you know, the woke crowd is like, there's nothing more boring than them, but they, I think they do get a lot of mileage out of that and i know that people like to dump on turning point usa but i think that like for a certain type of you know division one ncaa sports fanatic like that's a good um they do a good job of organizing people around that like making just make it cool like you know just make it like this cool kind of frat boy thing and no like people aren't going to think about it any deeper than like i don't know dude liberals are kind of nerds they're always telling me what to do i hang out with these dudes and we drink beer and it's fun Um, right i want those people you know what i mean i want those Mm -hmm. people i don't turn my nose up at that because like my you know for me my political project if i have one is about making it so that most people don't have to think at all about politics, you know, like why should, why should the average person have to worry about politics is kind of how I look at it. Like they should just expect that there's something, something resembling competent governance going on. And I think that, um, that I definitely think we can do that. I definitely think is in the cards. If I didn't, if I didn't, I wouldn't do the stuff that I do. Um, but that's kind of, you know, where I aim for is like, you know, what do you care who the president is? You're too busy living your life um, and it doesn't affect you in <laughs> any real meaningful 
way and it can just kind of become this niche you know interest of nerds um are you calling me a nerd and those Sam? guys no. you know the, the the tp usa frat boys or the or these parents at these loudon, loudon county school board meetings like they can just you know just go home and you don't have to worry about it you have to worry about crt coming for your kids you don't have to worry about uh mass cops you don't have to worry about you know the the epa deciding that there's an endangered uh crane in your backyard and you're not allowed to barbecue there anymore or whatever um that's <laughs> that's what i want you know it's like i i if anything i want people to be less politically involved i think that they, they the times kind of necessitate that they be politically involved and that can mean, you know, giving money or sh just showing your face at a rally or something very, very low effort and low energy. I think all that stuff is, has its place and is important. But like, you know, I, I want all those people who who are being conscripted by liberalism to fight in this political and culture war to kind of just be able to go home and live their lives without having to get into some pitched battle about everything every day. It's exhausting, you know, and it's and it, it right. is like it is mandating political participation um, in this way. You know, it's like the I, I I always say like the way that you know you live under totalitarianism is that you're you are uh, mandated by law to go do gymnastics after work because um, it like illustrates this you know principle that was common in totalitarian societies. It's like you you have to go to work for the state. And then when you get off work, you don't, no, 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 it's not time to go on wine with your family. It's time to like go, you know, do stuff with the, with the group. Um, and it's, and it's explicitly political, like even when we're doing gymnastics or something like that. Um, and yeah, I mean, we're not far from that because people have to, you know, like how many things in a given day do you have an opinion about that you just wish you didn't even know happened? Right. You know, it's, it's this Too constant much. churn of like out outrage and like I one of the things that I'm trying to really urge people to do to get a sense of perspective and to stop blackpilling so much is to kind of like take a higher level view of it, get out of the weeds of the day-to-day -day outrage mill. I mean, I think it's good to know about some of that stuff, but I think a lot of it is just kind of noise and yeah. You don't need to be following each and every um, little thing that's going on. And if you do, you should look at it with a longer memory than the three minutes it took you to scan the article. Um, because I think that that's really where you're going to start seeing patterns of resistance to what's going on and the generalized incompetence of the regime and also maybe get a sense of how kind of unmoored from reality the the righteousness politicized righteousness is in this country right now i mean it's totally off the rails like it's not it's not let's get kids out of coal mines and you know or even like let's stop people from drinking which I don't think is like the most ignoble goal in the world, but I wouldn't be obviously in favor of prohibition, but like, I don't, I don't find that to be an offensive goal. Um, I do find the radical leveling to be an offensive goal.
And, you know, but I think that when we look at it and we look in the patterns and everything, what we will see is a lot of victories on our side and a lot of incompetence and failure on their side. Yeah. Could you close with a really, really good line? And I, I really love it. And it's going to be kind of a spoiler for the people. Cause I'm going to share this obviously with um, the episode and then independently of it. But um, you said the attempts to decide what is right for you and yours and to enforce such at gunpoint is the essence of armed righteousness. The reader will ignore its ever-changing manifestations at its own peril. So given that you are obviously writing for ammo.com and touching on that point, um, I do want to get your take really fast as I step away from the article and, and see what you think the ramifications are for gun ownership and specifically for the right to self-defense with the results of the um, Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Well, I think that like, I, 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 I'm, I think that people should unequivocally say that Kyle Rittenhouse is an American hero. And I think that people should be unafraid to say that. And I don't think that that's what he set out to be. Um, I think that, well, I was going to say the, I think the premature death of anyone is always tragic, but then I remembered who he killed and I didn't, wasn't so sure that I thought that anymore. Um, but you know, I don't endorse vigilante uh, justice, but I don't think that that's what, I don't think that that's what happened. Um, and I think that, you know, particularly with, you know, the stuff about the volunteer junior fire department and the, um, cleaning graffiti for free and stuff like that. I think that, um, even the right has not really been as much in his corner as they could have been or should be. Yeah. And, um, because I just like, I think that even the, you know, I think that the, the shooting is a for Kyle, a tragic event. I don't think he feels good about it. I think that we should oh, also no. remember that like, you know, I think that, I think he, I think that he has PTSD. I think that he had a panic attack on the stand. I think it was very real. I think that he has rehearsed a like kind of boyish, aw shucks um, manner, but it would be stupid of him not to. But I think that, yeah, I, I think he had a, I think he had a PTSD meltdown. Um, well, because... he almost had one just sitting. I, I mean, I've watched the entire trial from beginning to end, but there was a moment where I think it may have been when Gage was testifying. It was a, there was a moment where someone was testifying, and it was like it was the moment where I think Shirafisi is the one that was doing the cross examination, and he got Gage to admit to the fact that had he not pointed his gun at Kyle, Kyle would not have shot him. And you could visibly see like Kyle like puts his hand when guys cry, they put their hands on their nose like instinctively to try to prevent the tear ducts from allowing the tears to flow. And he, he instinctively put his hand there. Like you could tell he was about to start crying again because for him, I think that was like the first moment in the trial where he had some level of vindication where he felt like that was what he had to do, but to hear that one of his victims be able to say that to him, I know that had I not done this, I would not have gotten shot. It, I think that overwhelming feeling for Kyle was, oh, thank fucking God, right? Like I, yeah, I didn't, right? Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, so I mean, like, I think that like, you know, I mean, I think that this is a big case because I think that really what we're looking at is whether or not we're going to live in a country where self-defense is legal or not. Right. Um, and I think that win, lose, or draw, Kyle Rittenhouse is going to be a mainstay in political culture probably for the rest of our lives. Um, I think, you know, what he does after the trial um, if he's a, if he's acquitted, he certainly can write his own ticket, I think. And I think that, um, if he is not that he's going to become a big cause celebrate for the no, right in this country. So far. I think it's going to you know be Sacco and Vinzetti for the Republican party basically. So, um, again, like I just, you know, I, I, maybe I'm, uh, I don't think it's Pollyannish. I just think that, like, you know, it's obviously it's tragic if he goes to prison. Um, but I don't think that, like, you know, even if there's kind of this uh, statement Fuck. about the perils of self-defense <laughs> that come out of it in the form of a guilty verdict, uh, it's not the end of the story. I mean, the question that people have I don't to know if you can hear me. But the question I that I would urge you. people to constantly ask themselves when they when they view these issues is, and then what will happen? Because there's there's like you know the there's the dialectical process of how this stuff all unfolds. You know, this Alex Jones uses the uh, problem reaction solution metaphor, and I think it's like it's it's not a bad one um, if we don't think of it in terms of like it's this predetermined outcome where everything results in the state getting more power over us and us always being one step closer to the gulag. Um, it's more to me about that, you know, like I, like I said, they, they, they can want to do a great number of things, but what they can actually do is far less than what they would like. I mean, you think like the level of freedom that we have in this country, which as somebody who has traveled around the world, you know, we're very lucky that we're able to gripe about the lack of freedom in this country that, that, um, you know, about the freedoms that we lost because like, other than Switzerland, I don't really know of any country that's as free as the United States. Um, but Sam, yeah, I mean, me? yes. Can you hear me? Okay. I can hear you fine, but you are not registering on my screen at all anymore as far as your recording is concerned. So the line isn't moving. Yeah, There's no line there. It's like you're not here, just your name is. It's really weird. Okay. I mean, usually when it does funky things on the like readout, um, I usually just soldier on and it's fine, okay. but, um, we should probably wrap it up anyway. We should. I've kept you forever. No, no, it's, it's fine. It's just like, I, I get up at un an ungodly hour and it's like, I do too. I have nine, to be up eight, at four in the morning. Here. So, and it's uh, 11. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I get up at five, which is like bad enough. But, um, so, yeah, I mean, let's let's just uh, you know, do 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 whatever to like kind of wrap it up, and we'll uh, wrap it up. Okay, um, tell everybody where they can find you. Um, I know you you wrote this particular article. Do you write frequently for ammo.com? So I'm the lead writer at ammo.com. You can find most of my stuff there. Um, I write mo most of the stuff that's on there is is written by me. Uh, we do have other writers, particularly doing uh, caliber comparisons and some other stuff. Most of the historical philosophical stuff is mine. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sam Jacob, 1776. 
My news aggregator is uh, news.libertasbella.com. They also make some pretty cool t-shirts over at libertasbella.com. Um, and if you want to get some cheap ammo, ammo.com forward slash Sam will get you $20 off any order of $200 or more. And yeah, we have that caliber that you can't find in stock. So thanks for having me <laughs> thank on. Thank nudge, nudge. No, thank you so much, Sam. I, I am so glad that we got the opportunity to sit down and talk and um, I will keep an eye out for your stuff and and have you on again anytime to to talk about any of the things. Awesome. All right. Thank you, love. You take care. Have a wonderful night. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to be notified whenever we have another episode come up, please subscribe. We are available on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen. Please make it a great day in America. This is the country where few people leave, too many people want to enter, and dead people still vote. Take care. I know not what course others may take. But as for me, give me liberty or give me death.